This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So today's uh, Friday, the, the 6th of November. We're approximately halfway through our retreat, so I hope you're all enjoying yourselves during this retreat. Is um, my voice coming through okay? Can you hear me clearly? So today's talk is a continuation of our exploration of Buddha nature. We'll be talking about does the, the case, the most probably the most famous case koan in, in Zen Buddhism, does a dog have Buddha nature? And the direct realization of Buddha nature or true self. Once again, I'd like to preface this Dharma talk um, just to remind ourselves that Dharma talks are not the truth. The closest you'll ever come to a presentation of the truth is silence. Every Zen teacher will teach in a slightly different way. In the same way that Barry teaches differently to Joko, but with a sense of continuity, I will teach differently to Barry with hopefully also a sense of continuity with Barry and Joko. And that's by necessity. Every Zen teacher has a personality with different interests and, and will always interpret things slightly differently. Whenever we express something and interpret something in words, we never get it right. It's neither, neither is it wrong, but it's not right, neither. It's not the truth. <clears throat> okay, so most of you are familiar with case one from the Moomin Can, translated as the gateless barrier or the gateless gate, collection of koans compiled by women and this one is a translation and commentary by Robert Aiken, probably one of the first Westerners to translate the, uh, this collection of koans. Because Robert has a, a finely attuned poetic ear, his translations are quite nice. So this one was placed as case number one in this particular collection. The story is very simple. Set in the monastery, a monk approaches a very famous teacher called Chaocho, Joshu in Japanese. Um, Joshu didn't start teaching until he was 80 years old and then continued to teach until he was 120. 
the kind of longevity one can hope for by practicing Zazen every day, if indeed one wants to live to one's 120. <clears throat> so a monk asked Chao Cho, has the dog Buddha nature or not? And Chao Cho said simply, Mu, M-U. In Japanese, W-U in, Ch in Chinese, Wu. Now, every uh, koan has a comment by the person who collected the, the, the stories. So this is a woman's comment on the story. For the practice of Zen, it is imperative that you pass through the barrier set up by the ancestral teachers. For subtle realization, it is of the utmost importance that you cut off the mind road. If you do not pass the barrier of the ancestors, if you do not cut off the mind road, then you are a ghost clinging to bushes and grasses. What is the barrier of the ancestral teachers? It is just this one word, moo. The one barrier of our faith. We call it the gateless barrier of the Zen tradition. When you pass through this barrier, you will not only interview Chao Cho intimately, you will walk hand in hand with all the ancestral teachers in the successive generations of our lineage. The, the, the hair of your eyebrows entangled with theirs, seeing with the same eyes, hearing with the same ears. Won't that be fulfilling? Is there anyone who would not want to pass this barrier? Okay, so then make your whole body a mass, a mass of doubt. And with your 360 bones and joints and your 84,000 hair follicle, concentrate on this one word, moo. Day and night, keep digging into it. Don't consider it to be nothingness. Don't think in terms of has or has not. It is like swallowing a red hot iron ball. You try to vomit it out, but you can't. Gradually, you purify yourself, eliminating mistaken knowledge and attitudes you have held from the past. Inside and outside become one. You're like a mute person who has had a dream. You know it for yourself alone. Suddenly, Mu breaks open. The heavens are astonished. The earth is shaken. It is as though you have snatched the great sword of General Quan. When you meet the Buddha, you kill the Buddha. When you meet Bodhidharma, 
you kill Bodhidharma. At the very cliff edge of birth and death, you find the great freedom. In the six worlds and the four modes of birth, you enjoy a samadhi of frolic and play. How then should you work with it? Exhaust all your life energy on this one word, move. If you do not falter, then it's done. A single spark lights your Dharma candle. And the tradition was to write a simple verse at the end of the commentary. So women's verse is this dog, Buddha nature, the full presentation of the whole with a bit of has or has not body is lost. Life is lost. So even though this is probably one of the most famous koans and is often given to students as the first koan that you work with, if you take uh, on koan practice, it's, it's not an easy koan. And um, for students in the West, like most koans, it can often be very difficult to get our heads around it. What the hell is this moo thing? Why should I concentrate on this word moo? Anyway, over the years, I've come to appreciate it more and more. So I'll just start off by asking of a, a very simple question and um, perhaps we'll come to back to it at the end of the talk. But in the context of this story, what do you think is the difference between a dog and a monk? You don't have to answer that right now, but maybe we'll come back to that at the end. Many people interpret the koan as when the dog is asking the question about Buddha nature, that he's really asking the question about himself. Um, a dog wasn't very high in the hierarchy of beings in the monastery. Um, and uh, so in some ways, perhaps the monk is struggling with the uh, notion that um, all beings have Buddha nature. Or as uh, Dogen, uh, I think, uh, appropriately rephrase that, all beings are Buddha nature. But this is difficult to wrap our heads around. It was difficult for the monks. So he's asking a sincere question to the master. So in koans, when the master responds, the response itself is the teaching. It's the presentation of the teaching. So when the master 
goes move. That's the whole presentation of the teaching. In that is lies the gateway into the realizing there's no barrier and never was a barrier in the first place. So the monk is caught, as we all are, in the duality of has and has not. That's why those two phrases are so important in the context of this koan. Has, has not. This is the fundamental duality that we all start off with in our Zen practice or in our spiritual practice. The general starting off point is, uh, I don't have it. I'm lacking it. I'm missing it. And he or she has it. And maybe they can give it to me. And that's where many people get caught. Of course, as we continue to practice and get a better understanding of the transmission of Dharma, there is nothing transmitted from the teacher to the student. The student just recognizes what the teacher already recognizes. It's a recognition, not a transmission. The teacher doesn't give you anything that you don't already have. The teacher doesn't give you anything that you don't already have. The teacher's job is just to try as best they can to help to facilitate the process of recognizing it for yourselves. This is uh, Chow Cho's um, way of trying to help the monk realize Buddha nature. So for the monk, he would have been quite well versed in Buddha nature theory. He would know that all beings are Buddha nature. And he's saying, well, how come I don't realize it? It doesn't feel like, you know, I'm Buddha nature. I don't feel anything special. What am I missing? So we have this metaphor of passing through the barrier, this barrier, Mu. What is this barrier that is quite clearly uh, an illusionary barrier, like a mirage? It's not really a barrier, but we think it's a barrier. And the barrier being that we are caught in our conceptual mind, we're caught in our conditioning of separation and duality. We're caught in being and experiencing ourselves as being separate. That's the barrier. The suggestion is to realize Buddha nature. We need to cut off the mind road. We need to exhaust the dualistic mind. When we cut off the mind road and exhaust the dualistic mind, we'll be freed, we'll be, we'll, we'll be able to walk 
together hand in hand with the ancestors, seeing through the same eyes and hearing through the same ears. So the, the metaphor of the mind road is just a metaphor that really refers to a whole spectrum of dualistic thoughts and feelings and emotions that we get entangled in the whole goddamn history of our lives that we get caught up in. You know, from the point of view of a contemporary therapeutic perspective, the monk, you know, is caught up in the core beliefs of deficits that I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm unlovable. I'm a loser, whatever there might be, whatever those core beliefs might be, they're all part of the mind road. The continuing getting caught in, in thought and concepts, it's the mind road. Including our emotions. And um, the, the, the commentary is saying that if we don't free ourselves from the mind road, we will remain a hungry ghost clinging to bushes and grasses. This notion of a ghost or a spirit clinging to bushes and grasses, bushes and grasses being concepts, thoughts, fixations, obscurations, all the things that block us from seeing that there's no barrier. Another name for it would be samsara. Um, we're just caught up in the samsara of everyday life. One of the most common forms samsara takes is the seeking of conditioned happiness or temporary happiness, something we find very difficult to free ourselves from. Whether conditioned happiness is an ice cream, whether it's finding the perfect partner or the perfect job or the perfect house or the perfect car, the notion of that kind of desire and samsara where we get some temporary happiness or release from our discontent or relief from our discontent by seeking out objects that we desire. That's the kind of samsara that we're caught in. And um, that's the mind road as well. As long as we continue to take the bait of searching for something outside of ourselves, or even searching for some special experience within ourselves. As long as we're seeking and searching for something we think we're missing or lacking, we're caught in the mind road. The mind road will continue to go on endlessly, just like the little rat in the spinning wheel, constantly going round and round and round and round. So the, uh, the Cohen in a way is meant to stop all of that process. Stop getting chasing our tail like the dog going round and round and round. Seeking happiness in objective experiences. The field always being greener, searching for the promised land. So Mu becomes, I guess, a kind of representation of the barrier. Um, and uh, 
I guess the, the practice of Mu is meant to, that sort of veil to dissolve, the veil of the barrier, the veil of separation to lift through the practice of Mu. So what is Mu? That's often the question that um, is given to the student. What is Mu? We don't understand Mu. It's a very, very interesting choice of word. So in uh, Chinese and Japanese, that would uh, often be translated as no, N-O, no. Some Western teachers like John Tarrant encourage students to take up the koan as no rather than mu. They say, no. No. So in a way, it was saying no to has and has not. No to all dualistic constructions. Saying no to having and not having. And the meditation instruction is to take up move as a meditation, as a meditative object. And the instruction, as in most Buddhist meditation, is basically two forms of Buddhist meditation. One form is to become one with the object. So it's the same with Mu, to become one with Mu. When sitting Zazen on a retreat, one simply practices Mu. You just keep mooing all the time. It's a perfect presentation in many ways to the question, what is Buddha nature? When we are going moo, moo, we're expressing mu as form, mu. You hear mu, right? I hear it, you hear it. That's the sound. And at the same time, we are hearing the sound. So the question becomes, who is it that's hearing the sound? of Mu. The common name we have for being aware is I, but not the I that stands in for the personal pronoun for Andrew. It is the I of the I am. It is the I of I and the great earth and beings simultaneously achieve the way. So mu means no, no to has and has not, but maybe one could interpret it as also as a pun, a punning on the word prajna in Sanskrit, which is jhana in Pali, non-conceptual choiceless awareness. In the word jhana, the root 
of the word jhana, ja, by the way, in English, is no, K-N-O, as in knowledge, or timeless present awareness, or don't know mind. The realization which brings enlightenment or awakening. So in the case commentary, it says you become whole, pure. Suddenly you see Mu. Suddenly you're not someone who's doing Mu, you become Mu, rather than you breathing Mu, Mu is breathing Mu. You see Buddha nature, you recognize yourself as Buddha, as the one mind. So sometimes in the Japanese Zen Buddhism, that's referred to as Kensho, seeing your true nature. It's often experienced with great joy, but that's not it. You have to understand that the great joy and the tears of realizing are often the result of long hours of strenuous Zazen on a strenuous retreat, pushing oneself in the Rinzai tradition very, very hard. Like any kind of exertion, whether you've exerted yourself playing sport or any other kind of activity where you put a lot of exertion into it, once you have that breakthrough, there's a whole pouring of relief that, it, that can be expressed as joy, right? That feeling, that joy is not it. That's the coloring of the emotion of realizing what's been there all the time. That's been more plain to you than the nose on your face. So that expression of emotion is the expression of, that's it. Finally got it. Doesn't always happen like that. It can be much more gradual, much more like the, um, as you're walking through a rainy morning or a very slight rain and uh, you're getting damper and damper all the time. So you're thoroughly wet. So the dramatic stories one reads about in terms of Kensho's, sometimes it's like that, not always. But the most important metaphor as you get in the case is that the inside and the outside become one. All separation disappears. So I was taught in the becoming one with mood. There are basically two kinds of ways in which students take that out. One is the really intense kind of concentration that one gets into on a retreat. It's, it's more difficult in our everyday life. But the sense of really very intensive concentration on that one word so that everything just becomes moon. 
The other way of practicing with Mu is just kind of more lighter. It's a kind of um, what Joko taught and what Jeff Dawson's taught, which is just actually just breathing Mu in the same way as you would if you were following your breath, but just very lightly. There might be thoughts arising and sounds arising as well at the same time, but you're just breathing Mu. That's the other practice. It's very much a shamatha practice in the way it's very calming, very focusing, very concentrating. But there is another way of practicing with Mu as well, and uh, that is more about holding the question rather than becoming one with the with the sound. They're both legitimate ways of practicing with it. There's no one has to do it this way or the other way. The other way of practicing is the question, what is Mu? What is this? What is it? Just holding that question. Um, when I was working with Mu many years ago, it was something that I just, and for some students, Mu doesn't grab you. So it didn't really grab me at that time. So um, I changed to who. And uh, basically the question is, who am I? Or who is listening? That was the koan that I worked on, which is the same as Mu, but slightly different. Just asking the question, who? Who is listening? Who is hearing? Just holding that in the background. And uh, rather than becoming one, it's more about taking that, what Dogen calls the backward step. So you're actually, rather than focusing on the object and throwing everything into the object, you're actually turning your attention around back onto the awareness itself. So not on an object, but on that which is aware of the objects is the focus. And this is very similar in what's called shikantaza or silent illumination or what we call in our practice in Ordinary Mind Zen, our main koan is just sitting. So when we are just sitting, we just become one with just sitting, just that awareness of sitting with no gap. Becoming one with justice, So what is enlightenment? As I said the other previous day, it's not a concept, it's not an experience like falling in love, not even an event in time. Joker Beck used to describe it as the absence of something. We also talked about there's no one who gets enlightened because when we are in the non-dual, there's nobody home, right? There's just the sound. There's just the visual, there's just the taste. There's no, there's no experience at present. The realization that this awareness is already awake. It's already enlightened. There's nothing we have to do to add to it.
And I'll just read out a quote from uh, Cam Wilber's book on the religion of tomorrow. He talks about enlightenment and um, Just hang on a second. A common, a commonly used metaphor um, to explain the relationship of emptiness to form is the ocean and its waves. Typical, limited, bounded states of consciousness, from looking at a mountain to experiencing happiness, to feeling fear, to watching a bird in flight, to listening to Mozart's music, are all partial states and thus separate from each other. They all have a beginning, are born, and they all have an ending or die. They are like the individual waves in the ocean. Each starts as a certain size from small to medium to huge and eventually ends. And of course, they are all different from each other. But emptiness, the reality of each moment, its sheer transparent being, its simple suchness or thusness or isness is like the wetness of the ocean. And no wave is wetter than another. One wave can certainly be bigger than another, but it is not wetter. All waves are equally wet. All waves are equally emptiness or equally spirit or equally Godhead or Brahman or Tao. And that means that the very nature of this and every moment, just as it is, is pure spirit. Spirit is not hard to reach, but is impossible to avoid. And one wave can last longer than another wave, but it is still not wetter. It has no more suchness or thusness than the smallest wave in the entire ocean. And that means that whatever state of mind you have, right here, right now, is equally enlightened. You can no more attain enlightenment than, the, than you can attain your feet, or a wave can become wet. Enlightenment and the big mind, big heart that reveals it is absolutely ever-present presence. All you have to do is recognize it. So a couple of little, uh, um, th um, I guess, um, warnings in the koan as well. Well, when you meet the Buddha, you kill the Buddha. So killing in this context is killing all concepts we have of enlightenment. It's a metaphor for non-separation. You are Buddha nature. There was never any separation to begin with. But be careful. You don't reintroduce duality, which can happen at any time. So now I have realized Buddha. I have broken through Mu. I have passed my first koan. I am so special and different to everybody else. You can see how the ego weaves its way back in really easily. At the very cliff edge of birth and death, 
It's the reference to impermanence, form. You see the great freedom. You need to see the great freedom. What is it in your experience right now that does not come and go? And finally, a single spark lights your Dharma candle. Sometimes the veil of separation lifts suddenly. The sense of a separate self totally disappears. You have literally died on the cushion. So if the single spark happens to be the buzzing of a fly in the zendo, then you become one with the buzz, buzz, buzz. You're no longer there. You're just the buzz of everything. But again, the cautionary note is we can easily get pulled back into duality. As soon as we get home again, it's all on. Duality returns with a vengeance. So the bad news and then the good news. So the bad news, enlightenment is not enough. Buddha nature is everything, but it is often blind to the unconsciousness, which we are often aware of, unaware of. We can still get entangled in all the stuff that we normally get entangled with. And depending on what stages of our life we have these realizations, it will vary from one person to the next. So for example, when one is very young or one still hasn't worked through a number of issues, having a major Kensho experience can easily get caught up and interpreted through the lens of the ego. So there's a lot more work we have to do on maturing our ego. That's why we need to continue to self-reflect, not just self-realize. And although in Zen we do have our character development traditionally, the character development work comes through the precepts, through the parameters, that's always been there. But in the West, we also now realize that it's, it's quite helpful to recognize the importance of working on the various stages of what Wilbur calls growing up. Our developmental issues, our developmental traumas, and so on. The good news, it is possible to integrate Zen with therapy. We have a very good teacher in that regard. So if you read Barry Majid's work on the integration of Zen and his particular practice of relational self-psychology, you will find an exemplar of someone who has done a lot of work on integrating Zen and psychotherapy. Tomorrow I will discuss a couple of different, a different kind of um, way of working therapeutically and another way of integrating Zen and psychotherapy. So my final question then 
back to you all. We'll open up for discussion. What's the difference between a dog and a monk? All right. David. I'll just get this one out of the way, seeing as it popped into my head. Um, as far as I know, um, the monk thinks it's a monk or knows it's a monk. And um, as far as I'm aware, because dogs, oh, I don't understand dogs. Uh, dog's not aware that it's a dog. Yeah, that's, that's a really nice way of putting it. I'll pass that one. Anybody else want to have a go? Richard? Um, the dog's got four legs and he's uh, hairy and a monk's got two legs and <laughs> hairy. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So you reckon there's not much, that di not much difference? About it, really, yeah. <laughs> you must be a dog lover. <laughs> Some dogs, yeah. Some dogs. Anyone else? Any doggy owners want to have a go? I, I, I have a question though. Ingela. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Go I, I have a question though. Why, why a monk and not a not a person? Well, a, per, a person, same thing. What's okay. the difference between a person and a dog? Yeah, well, um, only that one thing that David mentioned, and, and that's where, which is that a dog doesn't know it's a dog. That's right. So can a dog realize Buddha nature? And a monk or a person. Pingala. So can a dog realize Buddha nature? Same with Pingala. Can a dog realize Buddha nature? A, a, a dog is Buddha nature. Exactly. Tom, do you want to say something? But to realize. Go on. <laughs> no, I'm supposed to go woof, woof. <laughs> Sorry. Pingala, go on. What were you going to say something else? No, no. Oh. I, 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 that's it. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, uh, Angie, go on. Uh, I'm not answering the question, but I'm just wondering where we get this idea from that a dog doesn't know it's a dog. How do we know what a dog knows? Well, you have to become one, I guess, to know what a dog knows. Tell me next time you next time in your um, next life, if you come back as a dog, get in touch with me and let me know. I'm just saying just because we don't know something, we can't assume that maybe that's the case. That's but, true. I agree. So maybe a monk and a dog are the same thing. Mm -hmm. Just that I don't, I don't find many dogs in the Zendo, that's all, to my experience so far. Although I have had one dog in the Zendo, but that was brought in by a person. Dogs don't have to try, do they? They just, they just, um, yeah, that's yeah. right. They don't yeah. have to try, no. They're one with everything. Yeah. yeah. Who would rather who would rather be a dog than a human being? 
as well looked after. I'd like to be a dog. <laughs> <laughs> as long as my owner was kind and fed me every day, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> How do we know we're not dogs? <laughs> well, how do we know we're not a dog dreaming we're a human being and a human being dreaming we're a dog? Exactly, yeah. Uh, Richard. Yeah, okay. All right. So, uh, uh, okay, Pingala. Um, I agree with you, Angie, but I have chooks and they think I'm a chook. So <laughs> that, that would... That would tend to think that, make you think that they don't know the difference. Yeah, well, I think so. Some that's interesting. Some dogs seem to think they're human beings, don't they? Yes. Maybe. Was uh, yes. I'm I'm just reminded of a story I heard on a podcast about Mahasi Sayadaw, the you know the Theravada master, and um, you know in the Burmese tradition the dogs don't have a soul or they're they're not regarded as um, sentient. But uh, then he went, when he went to New York, he couldn't believe how well these dogs were being treated in, you know, he saw them in Central Park and they were being absolutely pampered and treated like princes and princesses. And he went, oh, I want to come back as a, I've changed my whole idea. I want to come back as a dog now, <laughs> see the way they get treated. So, <laughs> so yeah, rather come back as a dog in, uh, in, in New York than uh, Bali. That's right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Okay, well, well, we can move off the topic of dogs now and just open up for general discussion on the on the Dharma talk. And please feel free to comment or ask questions. Phil. Um, the, the thought that came to me when you were first uh, talking or talking through the koan was that maybe, maybe the teacher was offering the monk an invitation rather than a barrier by just going, moo. I kind of had this picture of the teacher just shrugging his shoulders and going, you work it out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, like, I like that. I mean, it's an, an invitation, yeah, invitation. And not buying into the uh, the monk's concerns around haves and has not, he doesn't buy into that. He cuts as an opportunity. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Lovely invitation. Hmm. <coughs> Step through. Yeah. There's no barrier. Yeah. Uh, but it's fine. Uh, so, sorry, Phil, you, you, yeah, do you want to say something more? No, I was just saying it's like come in, the water's fine. Yeah, okay, yeah. nice, yeah, yeah, nice. Hmm. Um, that's an old surfing uh, analogy. Okay, David. I just had a, a question, hopefully it's, it's quick. Um, at some point you're talking about... Um, different ways of, of practicing, looking at, uh, at a koan. And then you mentioned like, I think you asked the question, what is enlightenment? And you said that Joko answered that in a way about something like there was realizing there was no enlightenment, but I didn't quite hear it in time to 
to remember it, I'll write it down. The absence of something. The absence. You're not gaining. You're not. You're not gaining anything. It's the absence of something. So, what's enlightenment? The absence of what's absent in enlightenment. So, the absence of enlightenment, even. Well, there's the absence of the thought. I'm enlightened. What else is absent? Okay. Hey. Okay. Yeah. What else? <laughs> An inherent self. Yeah. No separate discriminating self. mind. No, no separate self, no discriminating mind, no ego. Cool. Thanks. I had another comment or question um, or which is around the the word mu, which I don't, I'm not familiar with Japanese, but I'm a little bit familiar with Chinese. And the wu character or word, to my mind, um, there can be a little bit of a problem with translating it as no, because in a way in Chinese, and I'm guessing perhaps there's something similar in Japanese, although Larry probably knows better, there's not a particular single word for, for no or concept of no so i'm wondering whether it might be a better translation at least for my mind as non the, yeah, that's, the character, very, Wu. that's very good david um the um the poet and scholar uh, david hinton who i'd recommend um translated it as well the woman can he translates uh Wu as absence hmm. So yeah, I'm thinking non, if you want to bring it down to a really small word. Yeah, that could be. It's possibly a, a, a less sort of... Uh, I think that the, um, the benefit of no, and probably why John Tarrant chose no, is this, it has that flow to it when you're meditating on a kind of like moo, no, like absence is a bit more difficult to incorporate into that kind of practice. Mm -hmm. You can ask the question, you know, what is Mu? What is Wu? You don't have to do it as a kind of mantra. You can just hold it as a question. It's another yeah. translation I've heard is some um, nothing or or emptiness. Oh, or no, or nothing. Yeah, well, no I think it, that's that's again. I mean, that's right. That's close, isn't it? But in a way, the. Um, it kind of like actually vocalizing moo, it's kind of like expressing it as well. So it's expressing emptiness as well. Like moo is expressing emptiness in form. Yeah, my point was sort of a linguistic one plus maybe a psychological one. I think in the West or in my mind at least, no is kind of like the answer to a question and it's got a lot of associations i think mm. you know from from childhood it's something that becomes uh, a a certain sort of barrier yeah i mean I'm, I'm not recommending that you take up that as a practice it's i'm just saying that it was something that 
You can you can read John Tarrant and his reasons for why he chooses. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm I'm not saying either. I'm just thinking out loud about what what sort of associates for me and yeah. what fits yeah. better as sort of non it can be just applied to yeah. anything or not. It doesn't sound very much like an invitation, does it? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Richard. I was just thinking when you when you vocalise moo, I'm wondering if it also stimulates your uh, vagal nerve. You know, that sounds like one of those vibrations that uh, sort of activates the the, um, the ventral vagal. You know, the the, um, uh, oh, the, the that, that's that's interesting. Like when when you're sitting, uh, say, doing zazen, you will be you'll be focusing on moo silently. Mm. But we do practice in the Zazen room. We have done it ourselves where we have the whole, uh, everybody in the room vocalizing it out loud for about 20 minutes. So right. it tends to take the form of moo or ma. It gets that really strong ah song. When you have everybody chanting it in the Zen, though, it's quite powerful. Yeah. You'll see. Um, is that what you meant? by breathing moo when when you said that's sort of a way of meditating with it or were you meaning yeah the, the, the sort of so the sense in which you start off by trying making an effort to practice moo so there's jill and jill's saying moo and practicing moo after a while you keep on doing it all the time jill disappears and it's just moo doing moo so saying, say, you mean saying it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Everything cool. becomes move in that kind of practice. Yeah, Tom. Um, yeah, I, I sat on this one for a while. Um, and I, is, is, it, is the problem you've got with the idea of what's the difference between a monk and a dog? That is it just to do with relative and absolute sort of levels of reality like relatively yeah a monk's a monk and a dog's a dog and that's the difference um and in a relative sense that makes sense um but then in an absolute sense if you're looking at things as sort of one great matter then you know the idea of you know everything's kind of one thing a dog's not really a dog a monk's not really a monk a monk's a dog a dog's a monk and then if you ask the question, give me a yes or no, you're asking a, a dualistic question. So then to respond to that with, you know, you want a yes or no, response is absent. You know. You, you, want, you, you want a yes or no response to what question? No, but I mean, if you ask the question, you know, is a, is a dog, a, it, it, what's, you know. Does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Does a dog have Buddha nature, yes or no? Right, and the, and the in the in the Cohen, the, the response is basically it's an, it's a no, but it's really a it's an absence. It's kind of saying, you know, if you ask me a question and I say absent, you know, I'm not really answering your question in a yes or a no. I'm not doing dualism. I'm kind of going, I can't answer it. Yeah, like like from a Zen perspective, it's it's not it's not a discursive answer. It's seen as a presentation of or for the monk. Um, yeah, and um, 
And yeah, and from the absolute perspective, yeah, dogs and humans all totally equal, equal, all totally one. Um, from a Buddhist, from centric or human-centered point of view, um, you might prefer to be born as a human being rather than a dog, or maybe not. You know, I don't know. But tr in traditional Buddhism, it's interesting. I mean, a dog wouldn't realize Buddha nature. Because a dog is not aware of being aware. But then again, I've never been a dog, so I can't say that for certain, like Angie said. Uh, Phil? Yeah, just, just on this matter, of, I was reading something, pretty sure it was around some of Dogen's ideas, and he called the human being a pivot. Pivot point being being the one form in the universe where it's possible to become awakened, and I think that idea permeates Buddhism a bit. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a special form. Yeah, that's that well, old saying yeah. about it's like becoming. Yeah, it's hard to become a human. Don't waste don't waste the the form that you have. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. From a Buddhist point of view, yeah. I thought the way you described it as a pivot, a really interesting idea in that the idea of pivoting from, I guess, a, I took it as from a conventional view to a more universal view. It, it requires a, a shift. Yeah. There's a Going thing. through the barrier, if yeah. you like. Yeah. Jack. Yeah, um, very interesting discussion. Um, so the um, monk says, the monk says, um, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? And Joshua says, moo! <laughs> and it's like, um, Buddha nature is not something you have, it's what you are. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's, you know, logical. Um, Although Joshua was apparently a very gentle teacher, so he probably would have said, moo. Yeah, probably. He was very, yeah, that's true. <laughs> he wasn't Rinzai. Vinci. <laughs> He would, yeah, hit people all the time and stuff. If you asked him, does a dog have a he'd whack you over the head. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and, but, you know, from the absolute perspective, a dog is Buddha nature, a person is Buddha nature, and the dog, a dog and, and a person are the same. And what what was what was the question you asked? What's the difference between the dog and a monk? And a human being. Woof 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 woof. <laughs> well, yeah. From that point of view, there's no difference. Yeah. Uh, Reese. 
if if um everything and everyone is Buddha nature and dogs are Buddha nature and we're Buddha nature, why what's the benefit in realizing it? If not just to kind of it makes our lives easier or or why why would we realize it? Well, do you want to have a go at that one first, or why do you think we we bet we want to realize it? My honest answer would be for myself, so that my life is easier. I can be a more benefit. I can feel a greater sense of meaning or flow. But they seem like pretty kind of, they all seem pretty kind of self-centered reasons, I guess. Um, I, I wonder what difference it makes to anyone or anything if, if, if somebody realizes it or not, if, if everything is, we all are Buddha nature. Yeah. Um, if the, if, if, something of the nature of Buddha nature is impermanence. And uh, I think we can throw in a bit of permanence too, Andrew. Um, then um, if, we, if we all realize the Buddha nature of everything, then, then we're into realizing the fundamental connection of, uh, of everything and for me, that brings up uh, big compassion and um, big respect and, yeah, reverence of each and everything. Yeah, so I think that's the key. Yeah, like, including um, my own um, small place in that. Yeah. I think, you know, in, in, you know, the traditional metaphor in Buddhism about the the two wings of the bird idea, the wisdom and the compassion, or the, the notion that uh, you know wisdom without compassion is 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 pretty useless. So um, the understanding is, and I guess one has to practice and through one's own experience realize that the realization of Buddha nature opens the heart as well. Can I, can I just say that I think, Reese, I don't think you're alone in terms of what you might call self-centered motivation. I, I think we all start out with an interest in something like Zen with ourselves in mind, you know, trying to resolve something. Could be a few things. But I don't, I, I'm a bit like you. I, then I wonder, well, I have often pondered this, well, you know, what's the point of me sitting on a cushion, you know, for lots of time and being introspective and all that. But I guess as time's gone on, I've just become more engaged in doing it as the action and probably started to question that big picture stuff a bit less because I can't don't have an answer. And I don't think, I can't I haven't really come across any teachings that really tell me anything besides some of that. I think sometimes the things you read in Zen books are a bit trite, like they say, well, if you become a, more aware or awakened, You'll know what to do in any situation. You kind of get this, sometimes it paints a bit of a picture, a bit of a superhuman, 
which I think is bullshit. You know, we're all sort of going to be the same in a way, no matter what. But, yeah, so I think it's it raised an interesting conundrum, I reckon. It's a bit of a co-end in itself. What yeah, you I mean, you're right, you're right, Phil. I mean, and then, I mean that's why Joko turned down the... Uh, Turned down the volume on the pursuit of Kensho. She was more interested in how you showed up at home with your wife or your kids or your, your husband. She wasn't so much interested in your great enlightenment experiences on the cushion. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thanks, Phil and Andrew. Uh, Pingala. Pingala. Hello. Yeah. Um, I see being aware of. Thank you. Um, I see being aware of Buddha nature is a responsibility. Um, it gives me the opportunity, or gives us the opportunity, to transform what we're doing in our lives. Um, I know that if I have a dog and it sees a goanna comes into the house, there won't be a moment that it'll be onto that goanna. Whereas, um, you know, as as a human being, I would I would hesitate and so yeah, responsibility. Mm. Yeah, yeah, lovely, yeah. I also think that it helps you get to know yourself better, which is very valuable. Get to know your reactions and how you, you know, how you work. That's very valuable. Yeah, it, it, it is valuable. But um, like I said at the end of the talk, it's not enough. Mm -hmm. We do need to do some more work as well. Uh, what do you Jack, mean? Uh, Jack, Sorry, sorry, Murray. What? What do you mean, more work? Well, the 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 realization of of um, Buddha nature or self, whatever you want to call it, does not necessarily automatically lead to a person who acts responsibly all the time. No, no. But what I meant is that if you get to know yourself, that's a very valuable thing. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that, that's the whole. Yeah. So in the sense in which we want to extend our Zen practice to getting to know ourselves in terms of our personal selves, not just our Buddha self. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. I mean, that, that's what gets missed out a lot in traditional Zen. Yeah. That's what Joko brought in. And Barry continued. Yeah. The way we behave in the world, I think it's you know, just to become aware of how you behave in the world. Because a lot of people are unconscious of the way they behave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, great. Um, Jack? Great, Marie. And then, okay. Was it? Go on then, Richard. Go on. I, I was just going to say thanks to Marie because I think that's a brilliant uh, insight. And um, right. I think that, um, you know, for me, part of the learning is to lower the bar a little bit and... Uh, you know, lower your expectations and then uh, sometimes you just get a surprise and that sense of, well, if I'm, if I'm just getting to be aware of my actions and, and my behaviour in the world with other people, 
maybe that's enough, you know? And mm. yeah, it's, a, it's not sort of like this huge thing about, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to see, you know, the reality of the enlightenment and have this, you know, kind of very ethereal sort of all of the, all of the um, kind of esoteric stuff. It's really just what you're doing under your nose and, yeah, so I, yeah, you can just you can just take some good LSD or mushrooms for that. That's <laughs> The <laughs> quick way, yeah. The quick way, yeah. The direct path. The direct. <laughs> so, um, uh, Jack, did you want to say something? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, like when we look at all our sort of conditioning and um, you know our unhelpful thought patterns and all that sort of thing. Um, you know that's really really helpful and I think it's also it's also really intrinsic to discovering Buddha nature as well because it's by you know not being so um, attached to to this kind of prison way in which we sort of build a prison for ourselves that we can um, begin to see beyond it and you know there's lots of people who who really have seen beyond it in a, to a large extent, but then they've still got a massive amount of like moment, serious mental, even serious mental health problems. Um, so kind of like if you do it, you, you do both, then they really feed each other. They work together beautifully. Um, and, you know, once you, the further you go along this, the, it just becomes impossible to dehumanise others, for example. Even people who have views that you are really opposed to. Um, like Donald Trump. Yeah, because <laughs> that's an example everyone always brings up. It's all right. Come on. Does, does Donald Trump have Buddha nature? Absolutely, he does, yeah. <laughs> what about our have, you not, have you not seen those Donald Trump Buddhas? <laughs> I saw someone on TV like worships Donald Trump. They had like a statue of him, <laughs> like like a Buddha or something kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, no, but you're right. See, Jack, it's it's about how can they work together in tandem, and that's what Wilbur talks about in much more depth about the fourth turning of the wheel. Yeah, I mean, you know, because I've worked in this area of abuse in Buddhas, and there's Teachers who can, you know, talk about Buddha nature and stuff and seem to be very enlightened, but then they're doing horrendous things. They're like, how is that possible? Um, and I suppose, you know, people, and then because people, you know, in the past treated enlightenment as the be all and end all and it sort of solved everything, you know, something like that. Um, like, you know, having a perception of Buddha nature um, was enough. But, in fact, people can still have serious blind spots and just plain dysfunction, serious dysfunction. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, very good, Jack. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. So, uh, Tom and then I think Reese after Tom. No, no, just Tom. Okay. I think Donald Trump's a really good example um, or people, people kind of like Donald Trump really good example of why it's worth knowing or thinking about this bigger interconnected sort of way of looking at reality. Um, 
I suppose if the the opposite of doing that is to completely ignore it and just get and stick your head right into your own self world and then do whatever sort of seems correct from that point of view, which can wind up in all sorts of fairly horrific places for you, for yourself and for other people. Yeah. But ultimately, you don't. How are you supposed to even know what you're doing? Yeah. If yeah. you're not aware of, of reality, then yeah. you can doing something strange surely you know yeah yeah exactly yeah i mean that's i mean that's why um uh, empathy is so important in our practice as well so we don't turn into donald trump <laughs> and you know like his self you know we talk about court in the self-centered dream his self-centered dream is like quite amazing in a way awful isn't it yeah i guess that's our option that these are our alternatives. <laughs> like he totally believes things that aren't true and stuff like that, like that, oh, you know, all these people love him or <laughs> whatever, you know. Or Hitler. Hitler's a good example, you know, completely right in what he was doing. You ask Hitler, he was just the best guy doing the best stuff. He knew the most. He was nailing it every day. He got up and nailed life. And he probably, it's not that he doesn't believe it, you know, but it's like, yeah, you completely missed a lot of stuff and then you've done some terrible things and now you're famous for all the wrong reasons. Like, it's, I guess that's, yeah, that's the, the alternative. That's why I think, yeah, I'm going to stick with this, even if it seems pointless sometimes. It's like, I'm better off looking at this than completely ignoring it and just running down this self narcissistic kind of, kind of avenue, I suppose, and hoping that it gets somewhere which it probably won't know we're good. Anyway, that's my take. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Yeah. Just a few minutes left. Does anyone else who hasn't had a go want to come in? Jill? Um, I just sort of wanted to share or say we are halfway through, sort of, like you've said, Andrew, and and touching on some pretty heavy stuff. And even though we're not supposed to be striving to reach some different mindset, um, big my experience on other retreats is it can bring up some pretty heavy stuff with people, and they can feel, you know, complete failures and. So I sort of wanted to say it's good because I don't think any of you are going through major stuff, and, I, and I'm not either. But just in case I'm wrong, I just want to put that out there, that it can happen in retreats. And we're on Zoom. We haven't even got, you know, we're not rubbing shoulders. So, yeah, just a, a caution there that, yeah. And that I hope that it's all as good as it looks. It feels all right to me. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Jill. I appreciate that. And um, yeah, I'll just reiterate what I said on Wednesday evening. Uh, if anybody does get into some kind of difficulties, let me know via text or phone message and we can connect with each other. Thanks for saying that, Jill. I, yeah, I think I was thinking about that earlier as well. Just like sometimes on 
on retreats yeah you have a sense if people are struggling because you're around people and um it's not as possible here so yeah thanks for that reminder